I'd like to know if you recognize this speech. It's an excerpt. We will again be the exemplar of freedom and a beacon of hope for those who do not now have freedom. To those neighbors and allies who share our freedom, we will strengthen our historic ties and assure them of our support and firm commitment. We will match loyalty with loyalty. We will strive for mutually beneficial relations. We will not use our friendship to impose on their sovereignty, for our own sovereignty is not for sale. As for the enemies of freedom, those who are potential adversaries, they will be reminded that peace is the highest aspiration of the American people. End quote. Well, up until I said that word, American, you could easily have put that speech in the mouth of King Agesilaus at any number of the great councils he attended, together with Greek diplomats of other states. But in fact, they were spoken in 1981 by the U.S. President, Ronald Reagan. But I brought this up because Sparta, in the Greek world, served a similar role that the U.S. served for many countries during the Cold War. The United States liked to fashion themselves as the leaders of the free world. Sparta believed in freedom too, certainly for themselves and for the rest of the Greeks, with some qualifications. They defined it differently than the 20th century United States tended to. Freedom to them, more than anything else, was about the excellence and the strength required to defend your claims to sovereignty. And like you could say of the U.S. and the Cold War, there were certainly many who questioned Sparta's claims to moral leadership. But this idea that they had of themselves, kind of like the U.S., had of itself, it wasn't all in their heads. Critias, the leader of the regime of the 30 at Athens, well, he once told an assembly of Athenians, quote, the constitution of the Lacedaemonians is, we know, deemed the best of all constitutions. And Lacedaemonian means Spartan, again. And if you ever read Plato's Republic, well, read it again after reading Xenophon's Constitution of the Lacedaemonians, and you'll see how hard many wise men, including Plato especially, thought about Spartan society and considered it among the best models. You could say that Sparta was a beacon on a hill for many Greeks. It was a model not just of military supremacy, but of what the good life should look like. And in Xenophon's eyes in particular, Agesilaus himself exemplified everything that was good about Sparta. Xenophon would go so far as to say that Agesilaus was even a champion of the Greek people as a whole, a man whose vision, at times at least, rose above the fray of that interstate strife that so plagued his lifetime. And Xenophon, by the way, got pretty close to the Spartan king. After he returned from the failed expedition of Cyrus, the one which he recounts in the Anabasis. Xenophon was unfortunately exiled in absentia from his home of Athens by his many enemies in the regime there. So he joined up with Agesilaus' army in Asia, and he marched with the king through Greece on the Spartans' return journey, and he was there at the Battle of Coronea that we ended our last episode with. After that, Agesilaus invited Xenophon to raise his sons at Sparta and put them through the same training that he himself had gone through in the famous Agoge, the leading, the Spartan education system, you might call it. 
Plutarch used many of Xenophon's writings to put together his perspective on Agesilaus, and Plutarch did admire the Spartan king's virtues. But Plutarch presents at times a more critical perspective on Agesilaus, and this is in part because he also drew on other sources on the troubled times of the 4th century. On the one hand, probably everyone could agree with the statement of Theopompus, one of the main Greek historians who lived in this period, when he called Agesilaus the greatest and most illustrious of the Greeks at this time. And greatest is probably not very controversial, at least if you measure great in terms of magnitude of impact. At the same time, though, there were many Greeks who questioned whether Agesilaus and Sparta really were the model for what a Greek or a Greek state should be. They were willing to fight hard to prove their contention that Greece had better options. It's no coincidence that the 4th century BC is really the golden age of classical political theory And the events of this episode in particular are absolutely central to ancient Greek political thinking. Often they're in the background. You don't even realize it if you're reading some of these texts. But it was in this period, in the 370s most likely, that Plato's Republic was written, to draw just one obvious example. As always in politics, one of the central questions was, who should lead and what kind of person And while the theorists were trying to solve this in their lecture halls and their treatises, debating and analyzing, Agesilaus and the men he contended with were working it out in practice, advancing their own positions on the issue in the great violent contests recounted in this episode and the next. I'm Alex Petkus, and you're listening to The Cost of Glory, where it is our mission to retell the lives of the great Greek and Roman leaders, to get into their minds and understand their decisions and the kind of values and habits they lived by. This is part two of three of the life of Agesilaus, king of Sparta. Before we get to the episode, I want to send a thank you and some good energy to our sponsor, the Ancient Language Institute. The Ancient Language Institute has become one of the leading places online to learn Latin and Greek. They've got great instructors, cutting-edge methods. Yes, there is in fact real progress to be made in the pedagogy of ancient languages, and they're making it. And they're fans of the cost of glory, which is thrilling and humbling. And they're announcing their first in-person event, a 10-day learn-to-read-the-Greek Bible camp this summer. It's August 14th through 25th. It'll be in Eugene, Oregon, at the campus of the University of Oregon. So this is an in-person event which will supplement and be supplemented by their already existing extensive online offerings. The Greek Bible, by the way, is pedagogically a great place to start with Greek. Even if the New Testament isn't your thing at all, it's pretty easy Greek, and it's the same language as Plato and Homer and certainly Plutarch spoke and wrote. And if you want to take this intensive Bible course, you'll need at least a low intermediate level of Greek to start, which you can get by taking one of the Ancient Language Institute's online classes. In the meantime, class times are highly flexible based on student availability. Check out their website at ancientlanguage.com. 
I've also got a direct link to the Greek Bible camp in the show notes as well. So thanks, Ancient Language Institute. And by the way, as of the launch of this episode, we still have a little bit of room left for the Ancient Life Coach Speak Lead Retreat in Rome this summer, but it's filling fast. Apply soon, ancientlifecoach.com slash retreat. See the link in the show notes. Okay, back to it. When we last left our hero, he just won a hard-fought battle at Coronea in 394 against a new Greek coalition led by Thebes, a coalition which was determined to humble the power of Sparta. This was one of the opening moves in a new bloody war. Today it's known as the Corinthian War, and that's because it ended up that the city of Corinth was at the center of most of the fighting. Unfortunately for Agesilaus and for Greece as a whole, it was this inter-Greek war, and not the much-hoped-for pan-Greek expedition against the Persians, which ended up setting the tone for the next half a century. The Corinthian War is a complicated war. It's kind of like the rest of the 4th century BC, in which Agesilaus reigned in Greek politics. It's multipolar. It's often very confusing. But I'm going to give you the big picture, and that is as follows. The conflict began, you may recall, when the Persians sent money to two of Sparta's greatest former allies, Thebes and Corinth, as well as one of Sparta's old enemies, Argos. The Persian king wanted these cities to make war on the Spartans. This would distract them, he hoped, from their expedition in Persian territory in Asia. And Thebes is already itching for a showdown with Sparta. Thebans spoiled Agesilaus' sacrifice at Aulus. They killed his friend Lysander in battle at Haliartus. And the Persia-bribed politicians at Thebes and of the other cities they're more than happy to oblige the king. And so a coalition forms where Thebes and Corinth join up with two of Sparta's old enemies, Argos and Athens as well. Thebes is the furthest north, and it's the furthest from Sparta. It's in Boeotia on the mainland, right near Athens. Argos is a lot closer to home. It's on the Peloponnese, bordering Sparta. And then Corinth sits between the two pairs, right at the narrow isthmus that connects mainland Greece and the Peloponnese. You can look at a map if you want. I've linked one in the show notes. Well, in this new anti-Sparta alliance, Corinth is very strategically important because it sits at this skinny isthmus. It basically controls Sparta's land access to the rest of Greece to the north, to places like Thebes and Athens. And in fact, it's Corinth, Sparta's former ally, who decides to host the new league's meetings where they talk about how they can ruin Sparta's fortunes. Now, Thebes and Corinth are upset at Sparta because they see that instead of treating them like equals, Sparta is clearly trying to become the supreme power of Greece, and Sparta is habitually slighting them. Sparta didn't divide the spoils of the great Athenian war fairly, with them her most important allies. This is an understandable grievance. It's basically true. Athens is less resentful here, and their main priority right now is just cautiously recovering from losing that great war. But then again, Athenians are always up for a little trouble at Sparta's expense. Argos, however, is Sparta's great ancestral nemesis. And the Argives haven't really been a serious threat to Sparta for more than a century, but still, in the eyes of the Argives, 
It's they who are the natural leaders of the Peloponnese, even of the whole of Greece. Hadn't the legendary king Agamemnon been the ruler of Argos? And well, now Argos is seeing this might be their chance to shake things up. So that's the geopolitical picture of the Corinthian War. Now, Agesilaus' battle at Coronea is one of a few big early Spartan wins at the beginning of the war. But these victories don't lead to territorial gains or peace treaties or much of anything because, well, there's another dynamic to this war. In a sense, something I alluded to in the beginning, you could say that Agesilaus and the Spartans are battling not so much for territory as for the heart and soul of Greece. This is easiest to explain in terms of ideology and political structure. In every Greek city, there's a basic polarity between the nobles and the commoners, between the few and the many, the rich and the poor, the great families and the little guys. In other words, between, on the one hand, what some refer to as aristocracy, the rule of the best men, and others refer to as oligarchy, the rule of just the few, and on the other hand, democracy, the rule of basically the entire citizenry, the demos. And typical arguments between these two groups or perspectives include how much should you have to contribute to the state in terms of money or equipment or weapons or talent in order to vote, hold office, participate in politics. But of course, the differences go deeper than that to things like what are the best things in life? War, business, art, wine, women, hanging out with your bros. How selective should you be with your friends? How selected are you? What I mean is what kind of family do you come from? Big and old, small and humble? Is your money from the land or the sea? from conquest or money lending, etc. Well, anyway, Argos and Athens, Sparta's traditional enemies, they're run as democracies. That means they have large citizen voting assemblies guiding policy, filled with small farmers, shopkeepers, sailors, and so on. Corinth and Thebes, on the other hand, Sparta's erstwhile traditional allies, these are run by smaller elite groups composed of aristocratic warrior nobles, or maybe cautious, wealthy business people, usually some kind of combination of the two. The few, in other words, they are oligarchies. And this means they are more like Sparta in constitution. And you might say that they were led by the natural leaders of society. And that's certainly how they like to think of themselves. Well, the wealthy and warrior nobles in all cities tend to look to oligarchies, but especially to Sparta as a moral and political exemplar. Well, the commoners tend to look to Democrat-run cities, especially Athens, and not just for leadership morally, but also friendship and patronage. And Athens and Sparta, in turn, they favor their friends in these cities, and they try to support them in whatever internal strife they might have. And there was strife internally in these cities because in each of them, there's always some not insignificant group of people who want a regime change, who want to take their constitution either in a more democratic direction or in a more oligarchic direction. 
And one of the most disturbing things about the Corinthian War, though, for Sparta, was how it seemed to break this usual pattern, in some ways, of oligarchs going with Sparta and Democrats with Athens. In fact, the Corinthian War broke out when many of these wealthy aristocrats in Thebes and Corinth defected from the Spartans, and they threw their lots in with the Democrats, the Argives, and the Athenians. And they must have been pretty mad to break the mold like that. So one of Agesilaus' diplomatic goals is to eventually bring these aristocrats, these oligarchs, back around. And one event in the middle of the war vividly illustrated the direst warnings an oligarch like Agesilaus might make about the dangers of excessive democracy. It was a bloody coup at Corinth. What happened is this. At wealthy Corinth, as this expensive war starts to drag on, Corinth's wealthy oligarchic leaders, well, they start losing their resolve. They start talking about coming to terms with Sparta to go back to the old way when they were allied with these like-minded men. The populist Democrats, however, the many, they haven't been in power since ever, and they know that if Corinth mends her relationship with Sparta, democracy is completely off the agenda from here on out in Corinth. So the Democrats decide to take matters into their own hands, and they wait until a solemn, great festival, a holy day in honor of the goddess Artemis, when all the citizens are at ease, enjoying the city's lavish public spaces. And then the Democrats, on a signal, they pull out weapons and they rush in and they attack and murder all the city's noblest and wealthiest citizens, the very men who are trying to bring about a peace with Sparta. And Xenophon describes the situation. Quote, they drew their swords and struck men down, one while standing in a social group, another while sitting in his seat, still another in the theater, and another even while he was sitting as a judge in a dramatic contest. End quote. And so a bloodbath ensues in the city, and many of the best citizens get murdered, even at the very holy altars where they flee for refuge. And this is a horrifying sacrilege to the Greek mind. And well, even more disturbing, after this incident, the Corinthian Democrats rip up the boundary stones that demarcate their land as separate from the territory of Argos, which is their neighbor to the south. And then, noble Corinth, for a brief time here, becomes governed as though it's merely an annexed part of Argos, as one city, which is incredible. And this was turning out to be exactly the kind of bloody democratic uprising Lysander so painstakingly tried to avert with his ruthless loyalist regimes. Was this a foretaste of what was coming for all of Greece? And as the war progresses, things do start to look bad for Sparta. The Argives station a garrison in the fortress on the Acro-Corinth, which is a large, rocky hill overlooking Corinth. It's one of the greatest natural fortresses in all of Europe. And on top of that, the Athenians start to rally. The Athenian naval commander, Conon, together with Agesilaus' old friend, Pharnabazus, they sail around the Peloponnesian coastline, unchallenged. Yes, Persia is backing Sparta's enemies here, remember? And they send raiding parties in from the sea, and they ravage Sparta's territory. Pharnabazus also sends the Athenians big bags of gold to help them rebuild their long walls. 
These are the walls that used to connect the city of Athens to their ports, the Piraeus. These are the long walls that Lysander tore down at the end of the war, precisely because these long walls made Athenians virtually impregnable to a land assault. So long walls up again. Well, this is bad. And Athens has also innovated a new fighting force, light-armed, spear-throwing peltasts. These are commanded by one of the great guerrilla commanders of the classical world, their general, Iphicrates. And in several battles, Iphicrates inflicts some serious casualties on Sparta and her allies. But Agesilaus steadies the city with his calm hand. War is a continuation of politics by other means, as Clausewitz said. And Agesilaus uses one of his signature strategies for wearing down enemies' internal political resolve to continue the war. Go out of their countryside with the army and ravage territory. Cut down vines, steal animals, basically make it hard for your enemy to move around or feed themselves. Hit them in the belly, so to speak, and get into their nightmares as they watch you burn their lands from their walls. And this strategy leverages one of Sparta's great advantages, namely that her own lands are better guarded than any other Greek cities. This is both because of the mountains that surround it and because of the men who live in it. Not for some 500 years has a hostile force been seen in Laconia. So Agesilaus makes this war very painful to his enemies. He ravages the lands of Argos, Corinth, Boeotia, and at the same time, he's minimizing Spartan troop losses by focusing on this instead of battles or sieges. And it's important for him to be sparing with Sparta's soldiers because their numbers are starting to dwindle. You see, in the past decades of war, Spartans have been hit especially hard because for certain legal and economic reasons that we don't need to go into here, it's very difficult for Sparta to replenish her warrior nobility the Spartiates is what they were called, the full Spartan citizens. It's a slow generational process to replace these people. And in the meantime, they have other Lacedaemonian troops that they can draw on. The, for example, Perioikoi, the livers around, who are from nearby towns that they govern. And they can also liberate their slave population of Helots, which are mostly based in Messenia to the west. They can do that if they really need to. And yes, their Peloponnesian League allies supplied plenty of troops, but, you know, the Spartiates are really the special forces of the Spartan army and the Greek world as a whole, and they're not easily interchangeable with any other soldiers. And a lot of ancient sources talk about this. Aristotle talks about the Spartan problem of oligonthropia as a big issue that they face, their scarcity of men. And during this Corinthian War, historians estimate that there were maybe a mere... 1,500 to 2,000 full Spartiates at the time, and that's compared with five or 6,000 just a generation or two earlier. Well, anyway, Agesilaus and the Spartans, they hold out and they make their ravaging raids. They minimize troop losses as much as they can. And by 387, after eight long years of war, the rest of the Greeks are finally exhausted. And what's more the Persians are starting to get annoyed at Athens again. The king of Persia threw Pharnabazus while well, he helped rebuild Athens' naval fleet in order to weaken Sparta. But now Sparta's gone from Asia and the Athenian commanders are starting to step into the void and they're getting arrogant again. They're casually persuading cities here and there to revolt from Persia. 
support Athens' war effort. And one clever Spartan politician sees that now there's an opportunity to turn the tables on Athens. And this guy convinces a faction of the Spartan leadership to send him to Persia, and he makes a peace deal with the Persians. That's both advantageous for Sparta and personally embarrassing to Agesilaus. The guy's actually an opponent of Agesilaus. And the peace deal he works out is a stunning reorientation of Greek politics. Sparta agrees to cede all claims of leadership of the Greeks of Asia and allow King Artaxerxes unquestioned sovereignty over the coastal cities in Asia Minor. And in exchange, the king of Persia will support the Spartans in sponsoring a peace treaty among the rest of the Greek cities, both in the Aegean Islands and on mainland Greece. All Greek cities, according to this treaty, are to be autonomous, independent. So Persian influence in Asia, the rest of Greece, autonomous. And screams of protest rise up from all the Greeks across the region about the first part of the peace treaty, Sparta, the great hypocrite, all these lofty words about Greek independence in Asia, about freeing the Greeks from the boot of Persia. Now they're just abandoning these people to their hated overlords. And much of the anger and criticism is directed against the Gisileus, the supposed pan-Greek champion, the pan-Hellenist, as they would say. And weren't they right to criticize him? What did happen to all those noble visions and promises? Can he do nothing? And it was surely embarrassing to Agesilaus, but he let the treaty happen. He even put his support behind it. Maybe this was because he admitted reality and saw that what was really in Sparta's interest right now was not keeping alive hope for some grand Asian expedition. That ship had sailed. And what interested him now was the second clause of the peace agreement, namely autonomy for the rest of the cities of Greece. And this autonomy, autonomia in Greek, self-rule, literally, it ends up becoming the new word that the great cities of Greece fight over for a generation, especially Sparta and especially Thebes. Because here's what it meant. Greece has long been divided into spheres of influence, great cities leading lesser cities on various terms, Sparta leads the greatest coalition, the Peloponnesian League. That league of theirs includes places like Elis, where the Olympic Games are held, Mantinea, Tegea, which are cities near the borders of Sparta and Argos, and Arcadia, which is a mountainous region. So these cities, are they autonomous or not, if they willingly follow Sparta's lead? And Messenia, to the west of Sparta, where many of the Helots live, or the captives, the serfs, and the towns around Laconia that Sparta governs. Well, are they autonomous? No. Well, then are they simply an organic part of the city of Sparta? Or should they be autonomous? So many questions arise there. But on the other hand, Thebes has its own coalition in its local region, in Boeotia. It's called the Boeotian League. Cities like Thespiae, Leuctra, Haliartus, where Lysander died and Chironea, which was later Plutarch's home. So are those cities autonomous or not if they follow Thebes' lead? 
Well, the Gisileus could see that with Sparta being the city sponsoring and enforcing the peace deal, which the Persian king was eager to broker and enforce if necessary, well, Sparta would be in practice the ones who got to define what autonomous meant in the context of this treaty. And well, you could argue somehow that Sparta's allies were free and its territories organically part of Sparta, whereas Thebes's control of the Boeotian League was, on the other hand, depriving the great noble cities of Boeotia of their autonomy. Sure, you might have to split a few hairs there, and you'd have to be pretty bold to say it with a straight face, but you could make the case. And this is exactly the case that Agesilaus starts making in front of the public meetings of the Greeks. And therefore, he wants the cities of Boeotia to all sign the peace treaty independently. And this makes the Thebans furious, because what this means is that in order to be a part of the peace, Thebes basically has to cede a lot of its power base, whereas Sparta gets to keep all of theirs, just all depending on how you interpret autonomous in the context of these two states. So Thebes is furious, they're upset, but there was little that they could do about it because all the other cities' treasuries are empty, their lands are ravaged, their citizenry is depleted, they're all desperate for peace, and they don't care what Thebes does. They're going to sign the treaty. And Thebes does not want to be left to the mercy of Sparta. And so all the cities agree to the Peace of Antalkidas in 387, as the Spartans like to call it. That was the name of the Spartan politician who worked it out. Many of the other Greeks called it what is better known as today, which is the King's Peace, as in the King of Persia's Peace. This is a little bit of a dig at Sparta because the treaty was really between the Greeks. The king of Persia was just supposed to be a benevolent, neutral, third-party arbiter. But a lot of the other Greeks would say, well, this is the Persians' peace, not really the Greeks' peace. And when some Greeks objected that Sparta was medizing, in their words, medizing is the Greeks' word for favoring the side of the Medes, or in other words, the Persians. They call the Persians Medes sometimes. Well, Agesilaus responds and he says, no, Sparta's not Medizing, Persia is laconizing. In other words, Persia is favoring the side of Sparta. Because while ceding Asia and giving up on his pan-Hellenism was embarrassing, even shameful, Agesilaus sees that this peace treaty that they have makes this long, confusing Corinthian war end really in a stunning Spartan victory. Consider it. Thebes gets shafted. They get isolated from the rest of Boeotia politically. Argos abandons the Acro-Corinth fortress and they put back up the boundary stones between themselves and Corinth because, you know, Corinth has to be autonomous now according to the peace deal. It can't become part of some greater Argos. And Athens is forced to restrain herself at sea now, or else fear Persian reprisals. But Sparta keeps her Peloponnesian alliance pretty much intact. And so now, with the king's peace in his hand, Agesilaus is in a position to make Sparta's influence and majesty greater in mainland Greece than it's ever been.
The Peace of Antalcidas leaves Sparta the most powerful city in Greece and Agesilaus as its greatest leader, the most illustrious man in Greece. But you know, despite his reputation as a hard-driving politician, as an implacable foe in war, Agesilaus was actually well-suited to peacetime. He was a big fan of shows and contests. He loved to see the competitive spirit on display. And the Greeks loved to compete and watch competitions, not just in sports, but even in their drama, music, dance, and poetry shows. And they always have winners and losers. But according to Plutarch, Agesilaus showed his characteristic style even in the way he followed spectacles. On the one hand, he was a major supporter of local choruses and games, and he would never miss a chance to attend and watch shows where the youth were competing. But when it came to celebrity entertainers, he took a different stance. Unlike in Rome, in Greece, actors and musicians actually had a fair bit of social status, so in that they were a little bit more like us. Plutarch gives an example of Agesilaus' take on celebrities. Once upon a time, Callipides, the tragic actor who had a name and fame among the Greeks and was eagerly courted by all, first met him and addressed him, then pompously thrust himself into the company of Agesilaus' attendants, showing plainly that he expected the king to make him some friendly overtures. And, after a while, he finally said, "'Do you not recognize me, O king?' And the king fixed his eyes upon him and said, Yea, art thou not Callipides, the buffoon? And the Greek word for buffoon he uses here has a specific connotation. And the scene here is kind of like calling Anthony Hopkins a street juggler. And again, when he was invited to hear the man who imitated the nightingale, he declined, saying, I have heard the bird herself. End quote. In other words, he recognized the power of song and dance and drama in shaping the character and culture of the youth, but he felt that showing excessive deference to actors and artists was beneath the dignity of a serious statesman. But all the same, he recognized the power of spectacle and its importance in people's moral formation. When he saw that many citizens had a very high opinion of themselves because they bred racing horses, he persuaded his sister, Kuniska, to enter a chariot in the contests at Olympia. In Plutarch's words, he wished to show the Greeks that the victory there was not a mark of any great excellence, but simply of wealth and lavish outlay. This is because the chariot race was one in which the winner was the owner and the funder of the horse team and not its actual rider. Amazingly, though, Kuniska did in fact win. And what's more, the royal household commissioned a bronze statue of her to be made by a famous artist, a guy named Apelles. And the statue stood prominently at Olympia for centuries afterwards, right next to the Temple of Hera. As a matter of fact, modern archaeologists have discovered the stone pedestal on which the statue stood. The statue itself was lost. And on that pedestal that they found, there's a little poem where Kuniska boasts of her exploits with pride. And here it is. My fathers and brothers were Spartan kings. I won with a team of fast-footed horses and put up this monument. I am Kuniska. I say that in all Greece, I am the only woman to have won this crown. And it's in the Spartan dialect, Doric, in the heroic meter, dactylic hexameter. So I'll read it for you in the original here. Spartas men basileas emoi pateres kaiadelfoi. Harmati doku podon hippon nikosa kuniska 
Econatan destase, monan de me fami gunaikon helados ek pasas tondelaben Stefanon. Well, what a woman she had to have been, one truly worthy of this noble task of shaming the rest of the Greeks with her upset victory. So Agesilaus even approached his peacetime work with that tireless sense of rivalry. And I think that here you can see also an instance of another pattern that's important. Even though he was supremely influential, Agesilaus preferred to work through agents when he could. This made it possible for him to let others take credit for victories, but it also gave him deniability. And most importantly of all, it helped implicate a larger number of fellow Spartans in controversial actions. This is actually one of the traits that drove his enemies mad, both those at home in Sparta and Greeks from other cities. And it's one of the challenging things about trying to understand his character too, because so much of what he affected in war and diplomacy and history, he did from behind the scenes as a sort of gray eminence or a puppet master dominating Spartan politics from behind the scenes. And for this reason, it's very difficult to separate the actions of Sparta as a city from the decisions of Agesilaus as a man. Historians of this period generally take the course of assuming that unless there's strong evidence otherwise, in a particular case, it's safest to bet that Agesilaus was the man behind every Spartan policy of this period. And of all Agesilaus's shadowy, indirect, and controversial actions, the greatest was what happened at Thebes in 382, after five years of relative calm and peace in central Greece. And it began with an embassy. One day, a few towns in the north of Greece come to Sparta to complain about a belligerent expansionist neighbor city. And Sparta decides to send an army to help these towns subdue this neighbor. The city was called Olynthus, but the important thing is here that the usual land route from Sparta to Olynthus to the north runs right past Thebes. Now, one of the commanders that they send to lead soldiers up to Olynthus is a guy named Phoebidas. And for some reason, Phoebidas decides to camp very near the city of Thebes when he's passing through. He doesn't have to do that. But now he's camped just a short distance outside the gates. And there are two factions in Thebes at this time. One of the factions is made up of the old guard, the older nobility. These guys are generally in favor of continuing to mend relations with Sparta, actually. After all, we were allies in our father's generation. And this faction is led by an old guard aristocrat named Leontiades. And he has long-standing family ties to Sparta, as somebody like that typically does. The other party is made up of more men from the younger generation. It's led by Ismenias, who is a nouveau riche populist with a shady background. And Ismenias is popular with the radical Democrats too. And he's opposed to all that Sparta stands for, their imperialism, their hard pro-oligarchic stance. Ismenias is the man most responsible for Thebes' brinkmanship with Agesilaus since the end of the Great Athenian War. Well, Ismenius and Leontiades are both polemarchs, which is an important executive office at Thebes. It's like president or consul. However, while the Spartan commander Phoebidas is there, camped outside the walls of Thebes, 
Ismenius keeps aloof in the city. What diplomatic business could he possibly have with the hated Spartans? At any rate, they're just passing through on their way north, right? But Leontiades, from the pro-Sparta old guard, he's seen going out to Phoebidas many times, courting the Spartans' favor. Well, after a while, Phoebidas, to all appearances, finally resumes his journey northward, right around the time when a religious festival is coming up on the Theban calendar. Are you seeing a pattern here? It's the festival of the Thesmophoria, which is a women's festival. And on that sacred day, all the men are staying home. You know, they're busy with the kids and the streets are deserted because all the women are up on the holy ground in Thebes's sacred Acropolis, which they call the Cadmia. And it's named after the city's legendary founder, Cadmus. And the Cadmia up on that central hill also happens to be a heavily fortified stronghold in the center of the city. Meanwhile, Leontides, the old guard aristocrat, he hops on his horse during this festival and gallops out. Nobody notices. And he's got a message for the Spartan captain Phoebidas. And then all of a sudden, while the city is unguarded, busy with the festival, Leontides secretly lets Phoebidas and 1,500 Spartan imperial troops into the city. They storm up, they rush into the Cadmia, and they chase the screaming women out, and they secure the fortress. And before the dust has settled, Leontides calls a meeting of the Theban Senate. They come. They're terrified. And Xenophon records the speech that he gave. It started like this. Do not be disheartened, gentlemen, that the Spartans are in possession of the Acropolis. For they say they have not come as enemies to anyone who is not eager for war. But as for me, since the law directs that a polemarch shall have the power to arrest any man who seems to be doing deeds which deserve death, I arrest Ismenius here as an instigator of war. And troops seize Ismenius. And with the citadel captured, the Spartan soldiers infesting the city and all, the Thebans are too terrified to resist. And Leontides and his cronies subject Ismenius to a mockery of a trial, and then they put him to death. And with that, the anti-Sparta populist party at Thebes collapses. Many of their leaders go into exile, if they can escape arrest. And very quickly, with the Peloponnesian garrison occupying the citadel, Leontiades and his party convert Thebes into a pro-Sparta police state. Cries of outrage ring out all around Greece. The Spartans have effectively captured the city of Thebes while a peace treaty was in full effect, a treaty which they had been the greatest backers of. How could this be called anything less than an act of war? It was an unholy deed. That was how the line went. And many Spartans are angry too. This was illegal by their laws and shameful. Better Spartans had been sentenced to death for much less. Phoebidas returns home to Lacedaemon to answer for his crimes. And the Spartan Senate meets for his trial. Agesilaus presides. A lot of people are calling for Phoebidas's head. Other Greeks are present to witness the proceedings. And at one point, they shout at Phoebidas, under whose secret command did you commit this act? 
and it's clear what they mean by this statement, what they are insinuating. All eyes turn to Agesilaus, the man who everyone expected to be most pleased at the downfall of his enemies at Thebes. Agesilaus rises, and he turns to the Gerousia. Elders of Lacedaemon, in this matter, we must direct our attention to the question of what is in Sparta's best interests. And it may be the case that something done independently might be the most advantageous to Sparta, even if no one ordered it. This very laconic statement causes many puzzled looks, but then many among the elders nod. He seemed to be, on the one hand, denying responsibility, but not so concerned to insist upon the point, as though the allegation that he was involved hardly bothered him. Because, on the other hand, he made his opinion clear that the coup was good for Sparta. And wasn't it? Was it not even best for the Greeks? Yes, it did represent Sparta forcefully consolidating power over stubborn rivals. But hadn't events of the past two decades shown that consolidating power properly in the mainland was the only path forward for ensuring peace among the Greeks? How could they ever rise to any grander destiny if they clung to this nonsense of a gentlemanly balance of power? The only winners of that game in the long term were the Persians, who could always find some way to play such autonomous, independent gentlemen against each other. There would always be some irritating, autonomous, third-tier city ready to wait at home and undermine any grander expedition that could unite the Greeks. And so, Agesilaus persisted, and he persuaded the elders of Sparta to allow Phoebidas to get away with merely a fine for his ill judgment, and, what's more, to leave the garrison in place. And the judgment of most later historians is more or less unified in seeing Agesilaus as the man, in fact, ultimately responsible for engineering the pro-Spartan coup at Thebes, that's certainly what Plutarch thinks. And Plutarch criticizes Agesilaus strongly on this occasion. Here's his take. Quote, In his discourse, however, he was always declaring that justice was the first of the virtues, for valor was of no use unless justice attended it. And if all men should be just, there would be no need of valor. Yet in his acts, he no longer observed these opinions, but was often carried away by ambition and contentiousness, and particularly in his treatment of the Thebans. End quote. And even Xenophon, who was an ardent admirer of Agesilaus and a friend of the Spartans, he called the capture of the Cadmia fortress an unholy deed performed by impious men. Because the king's peace had, after all, stipulated that Sparta should leave all cities autonomous, then how could anyone seriously think now that Thebes was autonomous, ruled, as it was now, by a pro-Sparta dictatorship, a junta backed by an imperial Spartan garrison? Sparta finishes the campaign in the far north, against Olynthus. It's a big success, but it's also a costly campaign. Agesilaus loses his half-brother, Teleutias, as well as one of his many unlikely friends. 
It was the other younger king of Sparta. His name was Agesipolis, and he was in his late 20s. He was a promising leader, but when he was out on campaign, he fell ill with a fever and died. The Spartans placed his body in honey, according to their custom, and they sent him on the long journey home to receive a royal burial. As Xenophon points out, many people who didn't know Agesilaus expected that he would rejoice at the news because Spartan kings are traditionally rivals. But instead, he wept bitterly. Agesipolis had come to the throne as a young teenager. His father, King Pausanias, had been a member of the Spartan Respectability Party, an opponent of Agesilaus and Lysander. But Agesilaus took the boy under his wing, you might say, and treated the young man almost like a nephew. When they were together, he used to talk with the young king about youthful days, hunting exploits, horses, and their long-gone love affairs. And Agesipolis treated Agesilaus like a mentor, deferring to him in public, treating him as one would treat a respected elder. And there are a few more striking testimonies of Agesilaus' ability to bridge over political divides and reconcile parties than his unusual friendship with King Agesipolis. But now that the Spartans had subdued Olynthus and brought it and many other northern cities into their alliance, it seemed to observers that the Spartans had now, at long last, established an unshakable empire. Never before in recorded history had any city held such a vast sway over this mountainous territory we know as Greece. From the Peloponnese through Attica and Boeotia, up to the hot gates at Thermopylae and beyond, the autonomous cities of Elis, Arcadia, Argos, Mantinea, Corinth, Megara, Athens, Thebes, were all, in reality, either firm allies or grudging servants cowed before the majesty of Spartan military supremacy, and also before the diplomatic genius of King Agesilaus, who more than anyone else was responsible for the current status quo. And wasn't this also a testimony to the excellence of the Spartan character and the Spartan constitution, the Spartan way of life that produced that character? There were pro-Sparta oligarchies across the land, most especially in the cities of Boeotia surrounding Thebes. And yes, they had Spartan governors, fixers as they called them, harmosts, watching over local affairs, ensuring that everybody stay autonomous. But let's not forget that they had many genuine local supporters, people looking up to them from all around the Greek world, counting on them to lead them into a better life, reminding them to abide by a higher sense of duty and order, and perhaps hoping that the Spartans would one day call them to greater things. And Sparta's supremacy was known across the Mediterranean. Dionysius, the famed Greek tyrant of Sicily, was sending them ambassadors wanting to court their favor. And given this new seeming permanence of Spartan rule, it's understandable that Xenophon sees what happened next as nothing short of divine retribution. Retribution, in his eyes, that is, for the impiety of seizing the Cadmia fortress on a holy day in times of peace.
On the eve of the winter solstice in 378, seven men enter the gates of Thebes during a blizzard disguised as local farmers. And together, these conspirators execute one of the most daring coups in history. And we'll leave the full story for the life of Pelopidas, a Theban who was himself one of the conspirators, coming soon. But these seven men were members of the Populist Party at Thebes, the anti-Sparta party. They've been living as exiles in Athens for several years. They sneak into Thebes and murder Laontides and the other oligarchs in the middle of the night. And then they break into the armory. They call their supporters into the town square. They pass out weapons and they call for reinforcements from nearby. And by dawn the next day, they have the Spartan garrison in the Cadmia under siege. And within a few more days, the garrison troops occupying the citadel capitulate and leave the city in shame under a truce right before an army arrives, which the Spartans scramble together to try to help them. And that was that. Well, with this unprecedented daring coup, really we could call it a revolution, the solstice revolution, Sparta's hegemony in Boeotia starts to crack. And not just there. All over Boeotia and in other parts in the Greek world, there are democratic and populist-leaning refugees. They are exiles from their homelands. Their homelands are dominated by oligarchies, which were installed and backed by Sparta often. And now these men start to flock to Thebes. Men exiled from nearby places like Thespiae, Haliartus, and Orchomenus, where Sparta has similar garrisons, and from further afield. And the energy is building, and it's concentrating at Thebes. The activity is especially centered around two key, relatively young Theban leaders, Pelopidas and Epaminondas. And these guys used to look up to Ismenias before he was executed by that oligarchic kangaroo court. But they want to take his populist Thebes-first ideas much further. And to them, Agesilaus is the figurehead of the entire regime that they are determined to undo. If they have dartboards, and not sure that they do, but if they do, it's his face on them. Well, Pelopidas is from one of the noble leading families in Thebes. He's the one that most people credit with organizing the solstice coup. And then there's Epaminondas. And Epaminondas is from a humble background, but what he lacks in wealth and personal connections, he makes up for in raw, otherworldly charisma. Epaminondas studied with the philosopher Lysis, who is a devotee of the mystical teachings of Pythagoras. Epaminondas lives a lifestyle that just suggests all on its own that he's dedicated to some higher sacred cause. After he got some success, many wealthy friends like Pelopidas offered to subsidize his lifestyle, but he turned them all down. He lived in voluntary poverty. And he even refused to participate in that solstice counter coup because he didn't want to spill the blood of his countrymen, even if he was enemies with them. He's also a vegetarian. That was something that Pythagoras taught, which is interesting. Both men, though, are very talented politicians and soldiers, and they and the new Thebes are starting to look threatening to a central principle in Agesilaus's grand strategy, and that is to keep Boeotia from becoming unified. This is something that Agesilaus picked up from Lysander, too, by the way. 
You see, Lysander recognized that a united Boeotia is inevitably going to get dominated by its largest and oldest city, which is Thebes. This is a frightening idea to Sparta because Boeotia is a wide and actually quite well-populated territory. It's fertile, flat, well-watered, and the cities of Boeotia can actually put a whole lot of soldiers and horses in the field. There's real power in Boeotia, possibly even enough to challenge the Peloponnesian League all on its own. Now, this solstice revolution, so far, it's just Thebes for now, right? And Agesilaus is obviously very alarmed by this, and he wants to take measures to keep it contained. And well, things look good at first. Athens responds to the Theban counter-coup with unusual restraint. Athens doesn't want to provoke a war with Sparta, and even though some Athenians as private citizens did help the Thebans out, Athens actually puts a number of people on trial for doing this, for instigating war, and they even execute some, which is kind of amazing. So that's good, that's good. But Agesilaus still wants to do everything he can to seal the deal, to solidify Athens' commitment to the peace. They must keep Thebes isolated. And so he scrambles. And he has the Spartans send ambassadors to Athens to further reassure them and smooth over relations. It shouldn't be that hard. He'll have the ambassadors point out that Athens and Thebes are natural enemies. After all, they're neighbors, which is practically a synonym for natural enemies in Greek politics. And you know, except for that rather pointless Corinthian war a few years earlier, well, Athens and Thebes have actually been at each other's throats for most of the past century. So Agesilaus' guys, they get there and they start talking. But then, right at the very moment that Spartan ambassadors are in the city of Athens making their case for renewing the peace, a wild disaster strikes. There was a certain Spartan who was in charge of a garrison in one of the Boeotian cities near Thebes. The guy's name was Sphodrias. Well, some Boeotian men approach Sphodrias with a suggestion. And somehow, they convince him that they are like-minded men from the pro-Sparta party in their city. And they propose to him a bold plan using words something like these. Sphodrius, you've seen how Sparta has just lost her grip over Thebes, so unfortunate. But you stand in a position to make up for that loss. Athens' port town, the Piraeus, it currently has no city gate. Why, with your garrison, you could capture it from those Democrats, capture it from Mother Sparta, and be held as a great man like Phoebidas. It's not far away. Let us guide you and help you. You can reward us later by helping us put away the Democrats in our city. Well, Sphodrius is not the sharpest spear in the armory, and he fails to realize that the men behind this idea, this proposal, the men trying to get him to attack Athens unprovoked, are none other than Pelopidas and his associates. But Sphodrius takes the bait. He marches out after dinner one night from Thespiae, where he's the garrison commander, and he thinks he'll have the Piraeus captured by morning. It's not that far away. It's not even guarded and gated. But he gets slowed down with this and that on the road, and 
daybreak comes and he's still a few miles off. And his troops get hungry and greedy and they raid some country estates. They steal some cows, plunder some farmhouses. No secrecy. I mean, it's done pretty incompetently. You get the sense that these Thebans really figured this guy out. It's just perfect for them the way it all shakes out. Well, word gets to the Athenians really quick. A large army is bearing down on the Piraeus. Athens panics. They muster cavalry. They summon the guards. And then they get the Piraeus sealed off long before Sphodrius arrives. Well, Sphodrius gets there and he realizes this and then he retreats. The coup is botched before any blood is even shed. But now the shock of the events starts to ripple out. Suddenly, Athens' commitment to staying at peace with Sparta is up in the air again. The Athenians immediately seize the Spartan ambassadors. They think these guys are in on the plot, but the ambassadors are completely shocked by what happened. And they point out, why would we put ourselves into your hands if Sparta were planning a coup? And they assure the Athenians, this man, Sphodrius, will be recalled immediately to Sparta and he'll be put to death for his crimes. And, well, this is enough to convince the Athenians, so they release the ambassadors. But then, Agesilaus does something even wilder. On the one hand, this is one instance where we can't attribute a Spartan commander's actions to Agesilaus. It just didn't fit into his master plan at the time. Spodrius genuinely screwed up on his own initiative. But what happened next is all Agesilaus. The Spartans are furious all dreams of respectability now are circling in the drain. The ephors recall Sphodrius to face trial and certain death for his crimes. He refuses to return. And Agesilaus has time to find out what really happened, whose idea all this was, and think about what it means. And he must have thought to himself, what would Lysander do? Well, Ancient onlookers and historians ever since have been wondering at the choice that he made here next. Plutarch follows Xenophon, and both of them tell this story of how Agesilaus took pity on Sphodrius because of the pleas of his own son. You see, Agesilaus's son was best friends with Sphodrius's son, and one son pleaded to the other, beg your father the king to give my dad a second chance. I promise he'll make up for the shame he's brought Sparta. And no one doubts that this really did happen, that Agesilaus' son pleaded with him about Sphodrius. Sure, and it's true, Agesilaus was fond of his children, almost to excess in Greek eyes. Plutarch tells one story of how a Spartan once came to visit Agesilaus at his home when his children were small, and the man was surprised to find that the king had, in Plutarch's words, bestrode a stick. In other words, he was playing horsey and romping around in the yard with the kids, something perhaps testing the limits of the royal dignity. But Agesilaus entreated the man that he tell no one until he himself should be the father of children. So maybe it was his usual favoritism for the people that he loved, like his son that made Agesilaus do what he did. Maybe, alternatively, it was his desire to unify Sparta because Sphodrius, interestingly, was a close associate of the other king, Cleombrotus. And 
He was known, therefore, to be a member of the opposing political faction. So here was an opportunity maybe to do a favor for an adversary and bring him over. Maybe, however, it was most of all that Agesilaus now had proof that Thebes is growing ambitious and arrogant. Pelopidas and his friends, after all, are deliberately trying to provoke a war with Sparta. There's no question now. They're trying to win over Athens to their cause preemptively and also to divide Sparta into faction at the very same stroke. These men are devious and determined. And Sphodrius, yes, he's a fool. His actions are reprehensible. But at root, he's a decent Spartan. He's a brave leader. He's well-loved at home. No, it will not do to sacrifice a good soldier like Sphodrius just to please some pearl-clutching Athenian Democrats. Agesilaus can see now that war is inevitable once again. And it's going to be a difficult war. Sparta needs to be united. If Thebes really wants to challenge Sparta for land supremacy in Greece, then why put off the contest? Well, whatever the secret reasons of his heart, Agesilaus uses his influence to have Sphodrias acquitted in absentia. And even Xenophon, a great admirer of Agesilaus, is forced to admit here that, in his words, it seemed to many that the decision in this case was the most unjust ever known in Lacedaemon. And the effect is everything that Agesilaus could have anticipated. When the Athenians hear the news, they're enraged. They immediately begin fortifying the Piraeus harbor. They mobilize all resources to build up their war fleet. They start sending aid to Boeotia. And they formally call the gods as witness to the fact that the Lacedaemonians have unquestionably broken the peace treaty by trying to seize goods and territory of Athens, an autonomous city. And with that, a new phase of woes began for the Greeks. Athens begins to organize a new defense league at this point. They resurrect the old concept of the Delian League. That's a league that 100 years ago the Greeks founded to challenge the Persians. It's a league that Athens then skillfully parlayed into a naval empire that they controlled. But this time, though, they swear off all their old abuses and their old colonial claims to the islands of the Aegean, and they say to their former allies, this time it'll be different. And this time, it's not a defense league against Persia, but a league against Sparta. And cities begin to sign up by the dozen. The Spartans have their other king, the young Cleombrotus, patrolling in Boeotia. He led the failed attempt to relieve the garrison at the Cadmia. But now, with the peace in tatters, things are considerably more serious. And Agesilaus decides that they need their best general for the war effort. And so he has himself dispatched, even as he's approaching 70 years of age. Sparta commences military operations in Boeotia. The Athenians retaliate and harass Spartan interests at sea. But Agesilaus sees tangling with the Athenians as merely peripheral to Sparta's main purpose in this war, and that is to break the power of Thebes on land and to prevent, at all costs, the formation of a Boeotian League. 
they must not allow themselves to get distracted by treating Athens as a real enemy. And there'll be no campaigns, therefore, against Athens by lands, no sieging and ravaging Attica, their territory. That's what his father Archidamus did in the Peloponnesian War. None of that. They'll ignore Athens wherever possible. And at first, the campaign seems to be going well. The Thebans are very hesitant to confront Sparta on the battlefield. Agesilaus ravages their country at will. This squeezes their food supply, and it shames them by showing all the Boeotians how little control Thebes has over her own land. But gradually, the Thebans start to get bolder, and they put up more resistance. And in one engagement, Agesilaus gets wounded himself. And Plutarch records, On this occasion, his rival Antalkidas said to him, referring to his wound, Indeed, this is a fine tuition fee which you are collecting from the Thebans for teaching them how to fight when they do not wish it and did not even know how. For in fact, the Thebans are said to have become more warlike at this time than ever before, owing to the many expeditions which the Lacedaemonians made against them, by which they were virtually schooled in arms. And the Spartan lawgiver Lycurgus of old, in one of his legal judgments, forbade his people to make frequent expeditions against the same foes, in order that those foes might not learn how to make war. End quote. And on top of that, there's discontent about the war among the Peloponnesian League allies. Remember that the allies make up the vast majority, really, of Sparta's actual field forces. Well, many are complaining amongst themselves that it's not on some public ground of complaint, but out of some private, passionate resentment that Agesilaus is seeking to destroy the Thebans. And at one moment of frustration, the allied captains approach him and they ask him, what do we have to gain from being ground down, dragged hither and thither, when our own soldiers in the army are so many and those of the Spartans so few? And in response, Agesilaus devises a plan to demonstrate to his allies an important point about the relative contributions each city is making to the campaign. And he orders the allies to draw up all their troops in formation. But he has the Spartans all form up separately. And here's Plutarch again. It's a famous scene. Then his herald called upon the potters to stand up first. And after them, the smiths. Next, the carpenters in their turn, and the builders, and so on, through all the trades. In response, almost all the allies rose up, but not a man of the Lacedaemonians, for they were forbidden to learn or practice any manual trade. Then Agesilaus said to the captains with a laugh, You see, O men, how many more soldiers than you we are sending out? And... This was, in fact, Sparta's special advantage over all the other cities at that time, undistracted, full-time training in warfare. And a side note here, you may remember a certain scene from the movie The 300, where King Leonidas is doing something like this at Thermopylae. But in fact, it was Agesilaus and here. But only a year or two into the new Boeotia campaign, Agesilaus falls victim to his own age. He's returning home with the army after a long campaign season, and in the region of Megara near Corinth, a blood vessel bursts in his good leg. 
and it causes his leg to swell up and it incapacitates him with excruciating pain. And his doctor makes an incision at the ankle and that relieves the pain from the pressure. But then Agisileus quickly faints from the blood loss and he has to be carried home. Everyone in Sparta is afraid with him on the brink of death. A bitter war is not the time you want to lose your strongest leader. And in Agisileus' absence, the Thebans get bolder and warning signs start to manifest. By 375, three years after the Solstice Revolution, the Thebans succeed at last in reconstituting their league. The League of Boeotia now includes all but just a few cities in the Great Plains of that territory. Pelopidas and Epaminondas, they organize Boeotia into what's effectively a democratically run superstate. Thebes controls the largest block of votes, yes, but the other cities get caught up in the vibe. It's a grand new project of Boeotian greatness. And Boeotia, swelling in power and arrogance, is starting to make their neighbors, the Athenians, nervous. Athens even starts making overtures to Sparta for peace, and nothing too substantial comes of this right away. But meanwhile, the Spartans are starting to face their own troubles at home in the Peloponnese, in many of their allied cities, populist leaders now sense Spartan weakness and they fan these long-standing flames of lower-class resentment. And they start trying to overthrow pro-Spartan aristocracies and replace them with democracies. And in some cases, the Democrats succeed. They withdraw their city's support from the Peloponnesian League. And in other cases, they get suppressed with bloody force, but that destabilizes their cities and it shakes their resolve the balance of power is starting to rock on its foundation. But Agesilaus persists. The longer Thebes continues to grow in power unchecked, the bolder these Democrats are going to get in the whole Greek world. It is Thebes that is now the epicenter of populist chaos, and defeating Thebes must remain the focus. They must either be subdued into peace or defeated in a decisive victory. And so the Peloponnesian League continues the campaigning and the ravaging. But instead of backing off, Thebes shocks everyone and manages to win a few fair fights on the battlefield against Sparta. These weren't decisive battles, but this was completely unprecedented. And it had a lot to do with the Thebans inventing an elite new fighting unit, a platoon of 300 of the best men in Boeotia, consecrated to full-time training for war, Spartan style. And they call these men the Sacred Band. More on that in the life of Pelopidas. Finally, though, the Thebans cross a red line with Athens, one of the last remaining cities in Boeotia that refuses to join the Thebans League. It's called Plataea. It's near the border with Athens. And for little Plataea's hubris of wanting to remain independent, autonomous, the Thebans surround Plataea, they expel its citizens, and raise the city to the ground, something they had long dreamed of doing. Plataean exiles stream into Athens, and Athens now is done helping Boeotia, and they approach the Spartans about peace, and they really mean it this time. And it is said that the great king Artaxerxes himself was eager to broker a peace between the Greeks because Egypt is still in revolt and the Persian king 
is running short of the Mediterranean's best mercenaries, that is the Greeks. They're all preoccupied with this irritating internecine conflict. And so the Spartans invite all the key players in Greek politics to be their guests in Laconia at a great peace conference in 371, after eight years or so of war. And Agesilaus personally presides over this meeting, which is to decide their common fate. All of the other Greeks present at this great peace conference in Sparta, they're exhausted by years of long war. They're all eager to settle their disputes. And many speeches are made in praise of unity and concord. And there are even speeches which politely criticize Spartan foreign policy. But even they worked their way eventually to close on a thesis of, let's have peace anyway. And Agesilaus is offering mostly the same terms as once before. Peace and autonomy for the cities of Greece. And all the others are ready to sign. But then Epaminondas stands up as the official delegate speaking for Thebes. And here's Plutarch again. This man, Epaminondas, seeing all the rest cringing before Agesilaus, alone possessed a pride which dared to speak freely. And he made a speech not concerning the interests of the Thebans, but those of all Greece in common, declaring that war had made Sparta great at the expense of the sufferings of all the other states, and urging that peace be made on terms of equality and justice, for it would only endure when all parties to it were made truly equal. Agesilaus accordingly, seeing that the Greeks all listened to Epaminondas with the greatest attention and admiration, asked him if he didn't consider it justice and equality that the cities of Boeotia should be autonomous, independent of Thebes. Then, when Epaminondas promptly and boldly asked him in reply whether he too did not think it justice for the cities of Laconia to be autonomous and independent of Sparta, Agesilaus sprang from his seat and wrathfully bade him say plainly whether he intended to make the cities of Boeotia autonomous. And when Epaminondas answered again in this way by asking whether Agesilaus intended to make the cities of Laconia autonomous, Agesilaus became violent and was glad of the pretext for at once erasing the name of the Thebans from the Treaty of Peace and declaring war upon them. End quote. So, all the Greek cities sign a peace treaty except Boeotia. Because Agesilaus' demand is, of course, that the Thebans and all the rest of the cities of Boeotia sign the treaty separately, implying Thebes has no authority over the others. But the Thebans want to sign in the name of all Boeotia, implying that they're unified, as indeed they were by this point in their democratic superstate of the Boeotian League. But now, because of their insistence, Agesilaus has them isolated from the rest of the Greeks, most importantly from the Athenians. And the Spartans have a massive Peloponnesian League army ready at focus on the western border of Boeotia. King Cleombrotus is commanding it. The delegates to the peace conference return home, and orders go out from Sparta to Cleombrotus. Invade Boeotia immediately. Thank you.
Xenophon was present in Sparta, perhaps visiting his illustrious friend and patron on that day in 371, when the news came of what happened in the fields of Leuctra. It was a festival day. The Spartan citizenry were assembled in the theater with King Agesilaus and all the officials. They were there for the annual celebration, to watch the young men doing their war dances in honor of Apollo. The messenger approached the ephors and gave them the report. People overheard the news, and alarm began to spread. All eyes turned to the ephors. The ephors, once they got the news, they instantly realized the full implications. But all the same, they sent out the order. Do not stop the show and the dances. Do not stop honoring the god. At the end of the festivities, however, they make the official announcement of what happened. Epaminondas, Pelopidas, and the Boeotian League have utterly crushed the great Spartan-led Peloponnesian army at the Battle of Leuctra, named after a town not far from Thebes. King Cleombrotus was killed, the first Spartan king to die in battle since Leonidas at Thermopylae. As the facts were rattled off, Agesilaus too would have put it all together pretty quickly. This was the greatest military defeat in Sparta's recorded history. With King Cleombrotus fell more than a thousand Lacedaemonians, including at least 400 of their grand warrior nobles, the Spartiates, and many more of their allies were killed as well. Historians estimate that even before the battle, there were fewer than a thousand full Spartiate warrior nobles left. And now, in a single day, they've lost half or more of their elite troops, who were simultaneously their ruling class. And among these, according to Plutarch, was Cleonymus, the beautiful son of Sphodrius, who was thrice struck down in front of his king and as many times rose again to his feet and died there fighting the Thebans. And at Leuctra, Sphodrius himself made up for the shame he once brought upon Sparta with his failed attack on Athens. Both father and son formed part of the great heap of Spartan dead who fought to the last, defending the body of King Cleombrotus. In fact, Leuctra was one of the greatest upset victories in Greek history. The Thebans defeated a foe who significantly outnumbered them. It wasn't that the Spartans were bad. Cleombrotus fought bravely and commanded well. Simply put, the Thebans were awe-inspiring on that day. The battle was even said to have been preceded by many signs and wonders portending a great change of powers in the world. I think it's best to put off the full story until we tell the life of a man who was there and shared credit for the victory, Pelopidas. But while Plutarch blames Agesilaus for the policy which brought about this disaster, he nonetheless marvels at the high conduct of the defeated city of Sparta when they got the news. But we'll read Xenophon's words here as an eyewitness. Further, 
Although the Ephers duly gave the names of the dead to their several kinsmen, they gave orders to the women not to make any outcry, but to bear the calamity in silence. And on the following day, one could see those whose relatives had been killed going about in public with bright and cheerful faces, while those whose relatives had been reported as living, you would have seen but few, and these few walking about gloomy and downcast. And this is because at Sparta, there is no higher way to bring honor to yourself and to your family than to die in battle, nor any greater shame than surviving a defeat when you could have fought to the last. As a Spartan woman handed her son or husband his shield when he went off to war, she said, come back with it or on it. But historians, observers, analysts from antiquity onward People like Aristotle, Polybius, Ephorus, certainly Plutarch, and even Xenophon, they would come to see Leuctra as a turning point in Spartan history, as an epical shift. And it is said that in this crisis, all the Spartans now thought back to those ancient omens that circulated around the time of the old king's coronation. Beware, O Lady Sparta, although you greatly boast, Lest you, though sound of foot, bear forth a kingship lame. For if you do, then sicknesses unexpected you will reap, and on you crash the rolling wave of life-destroying war. Was their state cursed because they had ignored the oracle's warnings and chosen a limping king? And yet did it even matter now? Because the man most responsible for this crisis was also the only one they could really turn to to lead them through the crisis. It's a Gisaleus. And what a crisis it was. On top of all their losses, now their enemies are exultant, and their city is now dangerously vulnerable, practically unguarded. How will Sparta survive? Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for part three. Stay strong, stay ancient. This is Alex Petkus. Until next time. <laughs>